olives into the holy city. And the people receiving Jesus were crying out that messianic psalm from Psalm 118, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And of course, Hosanna means save now. But as we discussed last week, the people that were crying that out, they weren't necessarily concerned about or prioritizing personal salvation. That wasn't their mindset or their hearts. But what they were prioritizing, what they were thinking and talking about is, let's overthrow the Romans. Save us nationally. Save us militarily from the Romans. And set up your kingdom, Lord. And they were spreading their clothes on the road. Uh, They were waving their palm branches. And they shouted and they cheered. But they had missed it. They had missed it. Because even though he is the Savior, the Savior of the world, he didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from a greater need, and that is sin. That is their greatest need. That is our greatest need. Any man or any woman, you see, isn't to be freed from Rome, but it's to be free from the bondage of sin. So Jesus, in his first advent, didn't come as a conquering king that would immediately set up his kingdom, but as a humble servant, lowly riding into the holy city on the back of a donkey, he came to die for the sins of the world. And again, this was the time of the Passover, as we discussed last week, and there are many people that are streaming into the city of Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, the perfect lamb of God, now rides into Jerusalem. And we saw that as it became late, that he went back to Bethany, that little village on the side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus never stayed the night in Jerusalem, interesting, even though it was considered God's holy city. Jesus would walk about three miles to Bethany, spend the night there. The next day, as we ended last week, he was coming back to Jerusalem. He saw a fig tree that had leaves on it, but no fruit. And Jesus said to it, let no one eat from you ever again. And so now, as we see that he comes once again into Jerusalem at verse 15, again, Mark chapter 11, they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Verse 17, then he taught saying to them, is it not written my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And let's pray before we continue on. Father, right now as we've spent this wonderful time of worship and drawing close to you and sensing your presence and as you do inhabit the praises of your people, we know that, that you're here in this place desiring to touch our hearts in a very deep way. So my prayer is, is that we would, Lord, open our hearts to you right now and what you want to say to us, that we would make application from the scriptures and, Lord, that we would be ones that, uh, Lord, come out of this place encouraged and edified and uplifted and instructed. So, Lord, thank you for this time that we have together in your word. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we know that a den, a den is a place where you would feel safe and secure and provided for. Uh, Yesterday or yesterday evening, right before dark, Sue and I and Barbara, we were taking a walk And we know where there is a den that has baby foxes in it. And we went to go check it out to watch the little baby foxes. They're fun to watch. And as we get closer to that den, then the baby foxes and the mother starts to get a little bit nervous. And they 
the babies go down into the den and, and they feel safe there. They're secure. It's a place where the mother will provide for them. Well, the temple, which was the temple dedicated to God, this temple that was to be a place of instruction and a place of prayer, all of a sudden had turned into a place where thieves came in and it was a den for them. It was a place where they were secure, provided for, that is, provided that they could rip the people off. They were making merchandise of the things of God. So the temple initially, as God's desire was when they built the temple, was to be a place where instruction took place. We know that Jesus, he taught at the temple. It was the religious leaders that would do teaching at the temple. And it was also a place of prayer. And what I hope and pray for this place, Calvary Chapel, is that it would always be a place where there is instruction given, where Word of God is being taught faithfully, where the Word of God is being taught to where you're receiving God's Word, the instruction from the Word of God, and also that it is a place of prayer where you can come in and receive prayer, where intercessory prayer takes place as we lift up uh, people and, and our community to the Lord. But also, when you think about this, instruction from the Word of God and prayer, they really can go together in your life. And what I mean by that, that as we hear Bible study going forth, may we pray in those points immediately. You see, not just jotting things down in my notes, as good as that is, and it is good, and we should be doing that. But more importantly, I must pray it into my life. Oh, Lord, work your word into my life, into my heart. That is what Bible study should be about. It's communicating to the Lord about your life. It is you communicating to the Lord about your family, your, your situation, your circumstances. And then as you hear the word of God, oh, Lord, I hear your voice. And what you have to say about my situation, what you have to say about my marriage, what you have to say about my family, what do you have to say about what it is that I'm facing or direction that I need. You see, the temple, yes, was a place of instruction, but it was also a place of prayer. And notice that Jesus said, for all the nations. Isn't that interesting? We'll touch on that in just a little bit. So it was not to be a place where thieves would hide out and rip the people off. And over time, it had gone from a house of study and a house of prayer to a den of thieves. I, I hope that a lot of you, and I think that you are, that as you come and as you continue to grow in God's Word, that you're really starting to learn how to study and then pray simultaneously. That is, when teaching goes forth, or while having your own morning devotions in, in your private times, that you are praying in what it is that you are studying. And it's very powerful. And if you learn that, allowing this temple to be a house of prayer, allowing your devotions to be a place of prayer, your heart is going to be stirred, and being a Christian is going to be very exciting. It will, will not be dull. The Bible doesn't simply become a book to study theologically, but it is the way to truly come into the presence of the Lord, hear the voice of the Lord, and then commune with the Lord as you pray in those points, and that you see and you learn, and you study the scriptures in that way. It's a very powerful way. It is Hebrews that declares, lo, I come in the volume of the books. How does he come to you? How does he come to me when we're studying the scriptures or when we're hearing a Bible study? Suddenly I am aware, yes, Lord, I need to pray that in. Yes, Lord, I need to repent of that sin. Yes, Lord, I need to change that thing, that direction in my life, that attitude in my life. Yes, Lord, thank you for that. And that 
truth that you've given to me, that principle that I see in the scriptures, because I know that I can apply it in my life. And that's a real key for us. So the temple was a place of instruction, teachings going on constantly, particularly during the feast of Passover that would be taking place. It was also a house of prayer. Jesus said, you've made it a den of thieves, where thieves hide in their sin. And when the scribes and the chief priests heard those comments of Jesus, calling the magnificent temple a den of thieves, how dare you, they would say, as we read in verse 18, the scribes and the chief priests heard it. They sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Instead of the temple being a place that honored God and and was a place where they would draw close to God and they would bring sacrifice to God, that was to be the emphasis and prayer and instruction from God, it ended up being to where the priests, the religious leaders who were entrusted to serve and to minister to the people, what they had made it was a den of thieves. How did it turn out that way? Well, what happened was that after the captivity of Babylon, you recall in 586 BC that it would be Nebuchadnezzar that came and destroyed Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. After the 70 years of captivity, the Jews would come back and rebuild the temple. And so it was that way for hundreds of years up until the time of Christ. Herod the Great had remodeled the second temple to where it became a magnificent structure. He expanded the temple mount. He overlaid the temple with gold, all these you know, different courtyards. And so it would accommodate many, many people. There's people coming from all over the known world to celebrate Passover. And you see, before the Babylonian captivity, it was fairly easy for people to bring a sacrifice because they lived around the temple. They didn't live too far. But after the dispersion, after the Babylonian captivity, many Jews stayed back in that area of Babylon in, in Persia and began to disperse throughout Asia Minor. There were Jews in northern Africa. So when they set up a system, listen, when you come to Passover, you don't have to bring your own lamb because it really wasn't practical for the people to travel long distances dragging a lamb along. That lamb that they were to sacrifice, remember from the book of Exodus, was to be without spot or blemish. And so can you imagine traveling again back in those days was very difficult. There wasn't planes and trains and automobiles. You traveled on foot by boat. And to bring a lamb, by the time that lamb got to Jerusalem, if particularly you're coming from the northern part of the country, if you're coming from Asia Minor, if you're coming from northern Africa, that lamb would be, you know, um, really go through a rough time. There's always the risk of it breaking a leg or an animal, wild animal getting in or whatever. So what started out to be a good idea, you can come to the temple, you can buy a sacrifice, that way you don't have to bring a lamb or a dove for those who were poor. And also, according to the Old Testament, when they came to the feast, they were to bring an offering for the temple. And so what was to be a good idea ended up where the priests came in and were ripping the people off. And so they were selling these animals and these doves at a very high price. Even if you brought a lamb, oftentimes, as history records, they would say, oh, sorry, we can't use your lamb. There's a little spot. There's a little blemish. So you have to buy one of our pre-approved lambs for a sacrifice. They would also, as they would bring money, as they would bring coinage, Rome, Roman coinage. Maybe if they came from Ethiopia, there was the, the image of Candace on the coin. They said, we can't accept that coinage here at the temple. That's idolatry. So you have to exchange it for temple money. 
And so they were doing it at a rate to where they were making a killing. So the Romans come in. What started to be a good idea ended up to where the priests took advantage of it. And how they were able to do that was when Rome came in, they said, hmm, the leaders of Israel are the high priests and the other priests. You see, it wasn't the days of the kings. That ended when the, the uh, captivity happened of Judah. So after that, it was the high priest that was the leader of Israel. So when Rome came over and they were submitted to Rome, they said, we want a high priest in office in Jerusalem that we can work with, that's going to work with us, that's going to do what we want them to do, that's going to appease us. That's what we want. They didn't care about the spiritual qualifications that are given in the Old Testament. They didn't care if that priest came from the line of Aaron. They didn't care if that priest was godly or not. All we care about is, is he going to cooperate with us, do what we tell him to do, and... We don't want a priest, a high priest for a lifetime. He can only serve for two years. So that's why there's confusion in the scriptures when it talks about Annas, that Jesus, when he began that series of trials before his crucifixion, stood before Annas. He was the powerhouse behind the high priest's office because Annas bought the high priestly office because the Romans came along and said, while we're thinking about somebody that we can work with, who's going to cooperate with us, uh, who is friendly with us, uh, we might as well give it to the person who's the highest bidder. So the high priest's office was given to the highest bidder. That was Annas. Annas started this ripping the people off. He's making a killing, and so he's in for two years, and then he began to buy the high priestly office for his sons. And that's why it says that Caiaphas that he was the high priest in the year that Jesus was crucified, as Jesus would then go from Annas, the power behind the high priestly office, to Caiaphas, who was the official high priest in the Sanhedrin council. So that was what was taking place. And Jesus comes in and he sees all this merchandising and ripping the people off. What would be a time of real devotion to the Lord and worship to the Lord and, and receiving instruction of the Lord. All this has taken place and Jesus looks at it and says, you have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer for all nations. Wasn't it just supposed to be the temple for the Jews and this is a Jewish feast? Here's the other thing that I think that upset Jesus so much. Do you realize that also during the feast, not only the Jews are pouring into the holy city, but the Greeks are pouring in, the Gentiles as well. You know why? Because the Greeks felt that greater the temple than greater the God. If you have a magnificent temple, you must have a magnificent God. And that second temple, when Herod modified it and expanded it, they were saying, wow, this is a magnificent temple. It was overlaid with gold. It was at that time one of the seven wonders of the world as far as buildings and so they came into jerusalem as well as you know from john chapter 12 remember the greeks came to see jesus they were coming in to see the temple too they were also coming to see what this god of israel is all about and it was an opportunity for them to be a witness and a testimony of the goodness and the faithfulness and the truth of god but they had made it to where it was a den of thieves and they would come into Jerusalem, those Greeks, and say, well, they're, they're no different than any other religious system. They're only out for themselves. And it was a terrible witness to those also, the Greeks that were coming in as well. You see, that's why it's very important for us here at Calvary Chapel that when people come into this place, that there is the presence of the Lord that is in this place that is felt and real, that this is truly a place of instruction and a place of prayer. 
that it isn't like the world. And unfortunately, I think that the church today at large, there are churches and ministries that have a tendency that let's try to look like the world or let's see how much of the world we can look like and still be Christians. I don't want to be like the world. I want it to be where this is a place that honors the Lord and a place of true Bible study and prayer and people who are hurting and people who need to hear truth can come and truly they're getting it. And they can sense the love of the Lord in this place and the love of his people as well. So all this has taken place. And so we continue on in verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembering said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Do you ever feel dry spiritually? Next time you do, think about these verses we just read. Next time you feel, boy, I am dry, I feel fruitless i feel like i'm withering away spiritually think about verse 20 what it tells us because it pinpoints the problem it was dried up from the roots that tree what is the roots well it's the part of the tree that we know that absorbs the the water and the nutrients to keep that tree alive it is the part of the tree that nobody sees and whenever you feel like you are dry there's a problem with the root system Perhaps morning devotions are being missed. Evening prayer is no longer a priority. Oh, outwardly, as we discussed last week, that tree that Jesus would curse, that tree looked healthy, it had lots of leaves, but it didn't have any fruit. And outwardly, we can look leafy, but our roots are drying up, the secret part, the heart. There's a problem. And we begin to dry up from the roots. So next time that, that you feel dry, ask yourself, is there a problem with the root system? Is there a problem with my heart? The thing that people don't see, is it being neglected? The seed being planted in my heart and it's to take root there. Is it continually being watered by the word or am I neglecting the word? And all of a sudden there is this drying that takes place in verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Now some have read this passage and taken it to be kind of a formula and jesus is giving us in which to work miracles or jesus you know uh, giving us a formula in which we can curse somebody just as he cursed the fig tree jesus is not telling us the secret and how to curse trees but he is telling us how it is that we are to live so not to be dried up we discussed again last week about the fig tree represents the nation of Israel and Jesus had pronounced judgment on the nation because there was no fruit. Instead of faith in God, they were interested only in empty rituals and procedures which outwardly seemed very, very religious, but inwardly it was dead and it was hypocritical and there was no relationship with God. They had lost faith in God, and the life of God that was in them was dried up, was withered. And so Jesus is saying this is the way to have a meaningful and full life. Trust in God, to believe what he is saying, to obey what he commands and to open up our lives and our hearts to him and to his word, that he might work through us and make us a fruitful person, to abide in him, and you will produce fruit, as Jesus said, we are to abide in him. Have faith in God. And as Jesus continues, he's going to make it clear that prayer must be offered in faith, that faith must be in God. It's not faith in faith. I think that sometimes Christians can mistakenly fall into that. I have faith in faith. It's faith in God. Faith is having trust and confidence and reliance upon God. 
Jesus continues to say, verse 23, For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you may receive them and you will have them. Jesus here giving a promise concerning prayer. And I want us to note something here that's very important. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who he has been teaching what constitutes discipleship, being a true disciple of mine. As we saw in chapters 9 and 10 over the last few weeks, we spent a lot of time talking about that Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me. So this is not a broad promise that anybody can say, well, bless God, all I have to do is believe it and say it, and I'm going to have it. I want a new boat. I want that cabin home in the mountains. So I'm saying it and claiming it, and I'm going to have it. That's not what Jesus is saying. What is the first thing that makes you a disciple? You are to deny self. You are to surrender completely to him. You are to come to him in childlike faith. You are to be the servant of all. So these promises are to those who know the nature and the character of God and how he desires for us to live our lives and truly have taken up their cross to follow after Jesus. So it doesn't mean that you're going to use this power through you know, prayer to fulfill your own lust. But you're using it to bring glory to God. So Jesus isn't just giving us some abracadabra formula for doing and receiving whatever we want whoever says to this mountain be removed it was a popular figure of speech for any insurmountable problem jesus is telling us to have faith in god when it is difficult for us there are mountains which oppose our faith the nation of israel had experienced some of those obstacles didn't they i mean here they were in slavery to rome there seemed to be an apparent silence of God for nearly 400 years before John the Baptist came on the scene. There was no prophet in the land. All these things, these circumstances created doubt and fear in their lives. They had experienced persecution and, and wars and all these things as you look at their history. It was like a mountain which opposed the fact that they were to have faith in God. God can overcome those obstacles. In verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. It's a very sobering verse, isn't it? Very heavy. A lack of faith is not only an obstacle to effective prayer, but unforgiveness and bitterness can also hinder our prayers. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 12, says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The importance of forgiveness. Jesus has called us to forgive, just as we are forgiven. And I know very well that there are times, there are circumstances, that occur in our lives that it's hard to forgive. Where we've been cut very, very deep and hurt very, very badly. And to forgive an individual or to forgive, you know, in that situation can be one of the hardest things that God has called us to do. But he has called us to do it. And it has to be him, the work of the Spirit, that does that work in us. We can't do it in our own flesh. 
And I believe it happens by going to him over and over again, day by day, moment by moment. And especially when we go through those times of great hurt and disappointments. We don't want to forgive in our own hearts. We don't want to forgive in our own energies and in our own flesh. It has to be the work of God because it's this big mountain which needs to be removed and it is removed as we go to the Lord, as we ask of the Lord, as we surrender to Him to do that work in our lives. We choose to forgive. I think one of the things above all else that seems to block the flow of the life of God to an individual and even to a church is this unwillingness to forgive, the holding of grudges, this unwillingness to to set things aside and to let God heal the hurts of life. And those hurts are very, very real. As they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he was condemned unjustly. They beat him. They spat on him. They mocked him. They pulled out his beard. They whipped him. They nailed him to the cross. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if I am going to walk as he walked, then I must forgive. This is not a suggestion given to us. This is a commandment from the Lord. And forgiveness is one of those signs, that forgiven spirit is one of those signs that I am truly a child of God. And if I don't forgive, if I hold grudges and bad feelings, then that root of bitterness will begin to grow, and it will begin to grow, and it will begin to consume you, and it ends up being very, very ugly. We just saw what happened in our midweek study of 1 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel. And there was Saul that was full of bitterness and anger towards David. And he died a very tragic life. He died a bitter, fearful man. But David, here is David who did no wrong against Saul. David, who was a man who desired to please the Lord, had opportunity to kill Saul, but he said, I'm not going to pay any evil to you, Saul. I am not going to do that. You've taken my inheritance. My family is off in Moab. You've pursued me all these years in the desert, and I've had to hide in caves. But yet David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And we're going to see when we move into 2 Samuel that David grieved for Saul. He didn't have the grudges he he forgave he wasn't one that had the bad feelings even though he went through so much and the thing what will happen is if we don't forgive we hold grudges and bad feelings for others it's going to kill you spiritually eventually and it will begin to eat away at you and it will begin to produce its rotten fruit and know this that god doesn't want you to live that way He doesn't want you to be bound up. He wants you to be free. And one way to be free is to forgive and to pray for that person, whatever circumstance you may be facing that requires forgiveness and allow the Lord to do that supernatural work of forgiveness in your heart as he changes your heart towards that person or that situation. And may we remember this, how much the Lord has forgiven us. I am so thankful that the Lord has chosen to forgive me. I am so thankful that he went to the cross for me. The blood of Jesus, there is forgiveness of all of my sins. I'm so thankful that the Lord doesn't hold grudges against me. And the next time I know that that I have a tendency not to forgive, that the Lord says, you need to take a walk, Jeff. You need to look up and you need to remember how much I've forgiven you. And I'm going to do that work in you. 
So it's one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, for a Christian to do, especially when they've been hurt. But Jesus is calling us to forgive. In verse 27, then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? So Jesus, in this final week before his crucifixion, going into the temple in Jerusalem, overturning the money changers' tables, swept out those who sold lambs and doves, and only Mark records that he did a very amazing thing, and that was he stopped the offerings and the sacrifices of the Mosaic system. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That meant he stopped the traffic of the priests as they were carrying out their normal duties connected with the temple and with the feast. And again, that was an amazing and daring thing for Jesus to do. And it shocked the religious leaders. I mean, everything that went on there at the temple was the heart and center of the life of the nation. And Jesus comes and he brings that priestly traffic to a complete halt. And so the religious leaders, the chief priests, the the elders, the scribes, they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And you can just picture them with a stern look on their face and snarls, you know, uh, on their faces and their fingers pointing, sternness of voice, questioning his authority. Now, these men asking him about his authority, they considered themselves the leading authority in Israel. The scribes being the one, the ones who interpreted the law of Moses, the elders, the chief priests and elders were those who were appointed to be part of the Jewish Supreme Court or the Sanhedrin Council. They were the Jewish heads of state, if you would, coming to Jesus asking, by what authority do you do these things? And they were hoping to jump all over them. And a strike at him, whatever answer that he gave. You see, if Jesus said, I do this by my own authority, then they would carry him away and arrest him because he had no official authority from their religious leaders to stop what God had ordained. And if he says, by God's authority, then they would have him arrested because of blasphemy. So they asked him this question not to get an answer, but whatever he said, they would have reason to trap him and have him arrested. Remember, the religious leaders are seeking to destroy Jesus. And the way that our Lord handles this situation is very remarkable. Under the pressure of these questions, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, I, will, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. So what's the question he asked them? Verse 30, the baptism of John. Was it from Heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reason among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus, in asking them a question, goes back to John the Baptist. He asked them concerning the baptism of John. And Jesus, in asking this question to them, is exposing their rejection of the truth. And it is clear from the answer that they gave that Jesus had turned the tables on them and had put them into a dilemma. These guys knew that whatever they said, that they would be trapped. If those religious leaders said John's baptism was from heaven, from God, then the Lord had them, didn't he? Because John had proclaimed what? That Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world then Jesus could say to them, if John was from heaven, 
and his revelation from heaven, then why didn't you accept the truth of John's divine revelation about me, that I indeed come from God? But if they answered, well, John's ministry, it was from men, then they knew that the multitude standing around would be very displeased with them, for the multitude saw that John was a prophet of God. So the issue comes down to all authorities either from God or from men. There are no other authorities. The scribes, the Pharisees, consider themselves to be the ultimate authority. And so this religious hierarchy has this private discussion, and what they decide to do is to cop out. Hey, you know what? We're not going to answer you. Because they knew that Jesus had them. And we don't know, they said. And Jesus said, okay, I won't tell you either. You see, those religious leaders had made the traditions of men above the scriptures, and we've talked about that as we've gone through this gospel. Their traditions were more important than the scripture themselves. Jesus told them, you've made the word of God of no effect. They rejected the witness of the law and the prophets. They refused to listen and hearken to the preparatory announcement of John the Baptist that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They had made themselves the authority. And I think we can make an application today. Because that is so often what people can do today and do in their hearts today. The reason that they reject Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, is because they place themselves above the authority of the Word of God, don't they? They, they trust in their own reasoning. They trust in their own understanding rather than the divine revelation given to them by the Word of God. So Jesus saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, but Jesus, this is what's fascinating, is going to continue to speak to those religious leaders about the rejection of the truth. He speaks a parable to them as we move into chapter 12. And in essence, really what he's doing is he's indirectly answering their question about by whose authority do I do these things. Chapter 12, then he began to speak to them in parables. Now, also keep in mind that Jesus, speaking this parable that we're going to read, he knew that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests would immediately recognize that story being from Isaiah chapter 5. And if you turn to Isaiah chapter 5, as you read it, there the nation is described as a vineyard brought out of Egypt and is planted in a choice land. So the Jewish leaders would recognize that this is about them. So the parable goes like this in verse 1 again. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4 again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and they, him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Verse 6, therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard so jesus talking about a landowner and his tenant this sort of tenant farming was a relationship was a common practice especially up in the galilee during jesus day so jesus using this parable and describing to those religious leaders who they are and what they are doing this parable he says that the vineyard 
of course representing the nation of Israel. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The tenants would be the rulers of Israel. The tenants didn't buy the vineyard, nor did they make the vineyard. They were allowed to work it by a generous owner. But we see that they turned against the owner. The owner sending his servants to collect what was due to the owner. They were, of course, the prophets sent by God. They were beaten over their history. They were killed, rejected by the nation. And so the owner sends his only son, speaking, of course, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They took him, and they're going to kill him, as we know, and cast him out of the vineyard. And in this parable, Jesus, again, indirectly answering the question, by what authority do you do these things? He's essentially saying, here's my authority. I'm the owner of the vineyard. I'm the rightful heir to it. I'm the beloved son whom the Father has sent. You've killed the prophets. you killed and beaten those who have come from God. Now here I am, the Son of God, and you will eventually have me killed. They would beat him, hand him over to be killed. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. But then he predicts what ultimately is going to happen to them. And so after telling this parable, Jesus asked them, verse 9, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. In Mark's account here, it looks like Jesus answered his own question, but Matthew's narrative records that Jesus asked the question. It was the scribes and the chief priests that answered the question. They said, well, obviously the owner is going to come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus says, you are right. You answered correctly. And in that you have judged yourself. In the last week of our Lord, Jesus curses the fig tree and it withered and died because it failed to bring forth fruit. The nation of Israel had failed to fulfill the purposes for which God had established them as a special people unto the Lord. They failed to bring forth that fruit that God was desiring the nation to produce. So what will the Lord do? He will take away the privileges, the opportunities, and he will give them to others. And so we will see the doors then being opened to the Gentiles. And Jesus here is prophesying and predicting that God is going to do his work among the Gentiles. And then the Lord's going to quote from Psalm 118. But real quick, a quick note. The Lord has done so much for us. And I pray that we would take the opportunities and those times that the Lord has given to us as we're producing fruit in our lives to share with others. That we would prioritize our lives in bringing glory and honor to him and being a witness for him. The Lord has given us so much forgiveness of sin, right relationship with the Father. We have the hope of heaven. And may we truly, the fruit that is produced as we walk with him and abide in him, be used to refresh others and to bless others. So in verse 10, as he quotes from Psalm 118, you have not read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in her eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We're going to end here one more minute, but don't pack it up quite yet. The religious leaders had rejected Jesus' authority. They had refused John's testimony. The reference that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament From Psalm 118, again, as Psalm 118 speaks of the triumphal entry of the Messiah, this particular psalm, the stone, also reads 
which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone, is often quoted in the New Testament. Peter quoted it when he was addressing the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4. Paul quotes it in Romans and also in the book of Ephesians. Here Jesus makes reference to it, and obviously it's a reference to him, the stone. Now think with me. Daniel chapter 2, in our recent study of Daniel, remember the stone that would come not made with human hands, striking that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, that image that represents human governments, that image being destroyed as it was hit in the feet by that stone, and the stone growing, growing, growing till it filled the whole earth, that stone being Jesus Christ and his kingdom being an everlasting kingdom. Jesus being the chief cornerstone rejected by the builders, the religious leaders. The magnificent temple that they were at would be destroyed in 70 A.D. But there's been even a greater temple that has been built over the last 2,000 years, and that's you and me. And Peter would write about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that you also, living stones, are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We know that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 would talk about the church being the temple of God. In the book of Hebrews, whoever the writer was, if it was Paul or somebody else, inspired by God, that they were writing to those Hebrew believers that were looking at that magnificent temple, the building, and missing it in the temple worship. And it was the writer that said, listen, you got something much better. That is Jesus Christ. He's the author of eternal life, and he is building a spiritual house that is far superior, that is you as believer. We're living stones coming together and being built a spiritual house, and he's our chief cornerstone. And we know that a cornerstone is that which everything else is aligned to. It's very foundational. He is our cornerstone. We align with him. We look to him. We don't go in our own way or do our own thing, but we place ourselves with the chief cornerstone, the very foundation of our faith, the one who keeps us in line, the one who will direct our lives, and that is you and I individually and us as a church, a wonderful, wonderful spiritual house that has been built, a spiritual house that is built here at Calvary Chapel. We're a royal priesthood. The priest ministered in the temple, and you and I have opportunity to minister as well. So those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, he's the chief cornerstone, or those who don't. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. They stumble being disobedient to the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ to the Jews, a stumbling block. And if you are here this morning, anyone, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, May he be your chief cornerstone, your foundation, your salvation, not a stumbling stone, not a rock of offense. But you see, the truth of the scripture is this, that if you reject him just as they were rejecting him, that he's going to be the rock that will come. He's going to crush this world and he's going to set up his kingdom. And his kingdom belongs to those who look to him And believe in him as the chief cornerstone. That he is the one that has put us together, this holy habitation, a body of believers in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful, powerful lesson that is given to us. And, Lord, I do pray this morning 
as we gather in this place, that Jesus said we're to have faith in God, have faith in Him. Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone in this sanctuary or anybody out in the coffee shop, that Jesus is not their chief cornerstone, their Savior. That you've never surrendered a heart to Jesus Christ. The gospel is this. That our sin separates us from God and all of us have sinned. The prophet Ezekiel says that the soul that sins shall surely die. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And so, Father, I pray if anyone here this morning has never surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ, that if you were to have your life end today or tomorrow, and you don't know if you have the promise of the hope of heaven and forgiveness of sin, that you would open up your heart to Jesus right now. He is your only salvation. There is no other name under heaven in which a man or woman must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Believe in who he is and what he has done for you.